0: This is class 39, the penultimate class of the spring 2010 semester. Today we will jump around a bit, trying to hit on many of the major themes and important passages of the long denouement following the destruction of the ring. As I promised at the end of the last class, I start today with a careful consideration of Eowyn and her choices. Okay. Eowyn. <laughs> Eowyn's confrontation with the witch king uh, is another interesting study in despair. We didn't talk about her as part of our hope and despair equation when we were looking at the different kind of models that were given in this section, Aemir, Theoden, Denethor, Aragorn even, that is, thinking of Aragorn and Gandalf in the last debate, and then, of course, finally Frodo and Sam. But Eowyn is is a really interesting a really interesting player in that equation because she is, you can kind of envision her somewhere between Aemir and Denethor. That is, like Denethor, she has despaired. She wants to die. Aemir and Theoden, though they reconcile themselves to death and believe that they are going to die, don't actually want to die. Eowyn, like Theoden, and like Theoden, I'm almost alone of these characters, actively desires death. But, unlike Denethor, does not just throw away her life, right? What she shows in the end, although she says she seeks death, and she holds up, remember, she holds up Phaedon as the great example. She wishes that she could be like Phaedon, because he, he lived the dream, right? He, he, he achieved glory in battle, and, and an everlasting name in song, and died. That's the best, Right? best possible outcome that she can imagine. She, you know, because you know, initially she sort of, you know, she, she wishes that she could ride into battle like Eamir. And she's like, no, 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 better, like Theoden. That's the way. So one of the things that we can see there is that death, although she sometimes talks like death is what she wants, obviously that's not what she wants most. If she wanted that most, presumably she could have gotten that on any other occasion. Right? She could have just hucked herself off the cliff at Dunharrow instead of coming on this long journey um, You know, and saved herself a long trip. So clearly, death is not the, the, the only or the primary even thing that she wants. And when, uh, when, when push comes to shove, which is a, a terrible understatement to use of like, when you find yourself personally confronted with a witch king on the battlefield... <laughs> That, I suppose, is one example of, the, of push coming to shove as far as the facing of death is concerned. Uh, we see how she chooses. And what she does is not throw her life away needlessly or uselessly, but instead to sacrifice herself very admirably. And not just out of a desire for glory, but out of love. Um, there are two... Speeches rank high, uh, not only on the scale of sheer awesomeness, but also on just to sort of you can see see in them what is important to them. Uh, page eight twenty three. Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. He's not offering death, actually. Remember, this is the witch king. He's already given that speech to Gandalf, that old fool this is my hour do you not know death when you see it speech right we know how he is thinking of himself and of this time he believes this is his hour his hour presumably he doesn't exactly say what is the hour for though he implies for his own triumph his own hour of glory where he, remember the the emphasis that Tolkien places on it when when he rides, right before he gives that speech to Gandalf, he has just ridden through the gate. Grand has just shattered the gate. And what comes through the gate is the witch king on horseback. And remember, Tolkien emphasizes that he came riding beneath the arch that no enemy had ever ridden under before. He is the first foeman ever to ride into Minas Tirith. No one has ever done it before. And he says, this is my hour, which sounds real plausible at that time. The city which has never fallen to assault is falling to assault in that moment. And it looks like it is going to fall to assault. So anyway, so here he is speaking with similar confidence to Eowyn. And the, the fact that he is not even saying, I will kill you, He's not saying to her, don't you know death when you see it? Seems to suggest a kind of disdain for her. Well, he doesn't even know it's a her, right? For this person in front of him, this single warrior who is trying to oppose him. Him, of all people. I love how he speaks of himself in the third person here. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool, no living man may hinder me. Uh, and if this makes you think of Macbeth again, it should. Uh, this is our second quasi-Macbeth reference. Uh, you know, in, in these books, we talked about the great Burnham Wood, the high Dunsinane Hill really coming, uh, as we see in the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, here, we have the sort of, of course, the echo of the prophecy about, uh, about Macduff. Um, and a similar kind of uh, not exactly the same of course uh, confirmation of it but still but again we see his confidence no living man may hinder me he is alluding to a prophecy this prophecy was made you can read about this in appendix a if you choose to read more of appendix a than i have asked you to read for next time i've asked you to read the bit in appendix a which describes the story of aragorn and arwen where um, Tolkien finally gives that whole backstory in the appendix. Um, but if you read up the rest of Appendix A, you will uh, read many other things. One of which is the account of the battle against the Witch King of Angmar when he was still going as the Witch King of Angmar, um, in which a prophecy is uttered by our old but brief friend Um On the ba- he's like they, they meet on the battlefield, and Gorfindel prophesies not to the witch king, uh, but to Arnor, the last king of Gondor. He's not king yet, but he's there uh, at that battle and he wanted to fight the witch king and take him on, but his horse got scared and ran away and he was shamed um, because it looked like he ran away in battle and the witch king gives him no end of grief for that after that, calling him a coward and everything. Um, but anyway, so he wants to go after him and Gorfindel says to him, no, don't go. For no... for." he won't fall by the hand of any living man. And the witch king has heard about this prophecy and quotes it here. But we can see how he, what he thinks of himself. Hinder me, thou fool. And then Dernhelm laughs. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eowyn's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if thou be not deathless. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. That's a really good speech, too. But again, notice her motivation here. His motivation. Thou hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. Both, don't you know who I am? And don't you realize this is my hour? And her motivation? You stand between... I, this is my Lord and kin. For both of those reasons. I don't care who you are. I will smite you if you touch him. And, of course, she does. And he's briefly uncomfortable, but then proceeds anyway. Right? Uh, to his destruction. She sacrifices herself for love. She is not in this moment thinking of glory. We can tell that because, of course, after this, she is being given glory. But she doesn't care. You know, when she's in the houses of healing, she's not like, okay, well, I wanted to ride out to glory and, oh, really, to be perfectly honest, I've I've done something pretty sweet, I have to say. (laughs) Right? I'm I'm already mentally reformatting my resume to include killed the freaking witch king (laughs) on the resume. Okay? I mean, she could be thinking that way if glory were her only goal. But she keeps, even though she keeps being told this, though, you know, your deeds have already placed you among the queens of renown, she doesn't care. And she's just like, man, I really wish I could ride off to battle like Theoden again. Right? She's still, so glory isn't her primary goal, or she would be, presumably, at least modestly pleased with what she's accomplished. Um, She still sort of has another problem. Um, But in that moment, It's not gory that she's thinking about. It's love. Love both as subject and love as niece for her lord and kin. And that motivation is a good motivation. And her plan to sacrifice herself to stand even at the risk, very exceptional risk, apparently, of her own death, um, is a very good one. Of course... Needless to say, there is great irony in the witch king's this-is-my-hour statement. Well, it is his hour, just not his hour that he thinks, right? Uh, it is his hour of, of death, his hour of destruction, which he is not aware of. Um, now, I want to come to Eowyn's decision in the Houses of Healing. And there are two mistakes that people can, many people dislike, Uh, many people dislike what happens at the end of Eowyn's career when she decides she's going to give up being a shield maiden uh, and she's going to become a healer. Um, So I I think there there are two mistakes that we can make about this. There is the misguided, what I call, the misguided pro-woman reading of this passage, uh, which says... Ah, uh, see, she is... Uh, you know, uh, not just of this passage, of sort of the whole Aowen story. If you emerge from the Aowen story saying, Ah, see, look, this is an excellent pro-woman passage. This is a woman holding her own in a man's world. That is awesome. That, I think, to be misguided. If we come out of it saying there's also a misguided anti-woman reading that is reading it as anti-woman um, and, and saying, Okay, see, look... Of course, at the, at the end of Eowyn's career, she is relegated back to the feminine sphere, right? Eowyn puts herself back in her place where she belongs. You know, she's briefly in the masculine world, but then she appropriately retires from it and goes back to being all feminine. Oh, I'm going to be a healer. I shan't be, you know wield the sword anymore because I'm a woman, and I'm going to get married now and settle down and put on a skirt, Right? <laughs> That's one way in which it's often read and, peop- and 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 especially people who were really excited in the first way, right? If your first impression is like a you-go-girl reading of Eowyn in the battle, one is likely to be disappointed when she becomes a healer. I've called both of these readings misguided um, because I think there's one primary factor involved. This... Her decision at the end to become a healer is not about gender. We want to read it in a gendered way. Um, We we usually do want to read things like this in a gendered way. The book has given us... And I'm not saying that it's inappropriate to ask gender-related questions of it, but the text gives us a framework in which to understand her choice. And I want to go back and read some passages to remind you of that framework because it's a very important one. Um, A few passages... You probably didn't bring your two towers, but that's okay. There's just short passages. Um, a, a couple, a couple uh, quotations from, very relevantly, Faramir, back in the two towers. This is Faramir talking about the Rohirrim, <coughs> characterizing them as a culture. And we love them, he says. Tall men and fair women. The irony is lovely. Now, but no, no, notice, notice this emphasis. Tall men and fair women, valiant both alike, he emphasizes. He's, he is in no, he, he's in, in no doubt, he, he has said way before anything <laughs> has happened at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, mm-hmm. Faramir states that he believes the men and women of Rohan are equally va- valiant. Okay? Valiant both alike, golden-haired, bright-eyed, and strong. They remind us of the youth of men as they were in the elder days. Now, he goes on to say, he talks about how, you know, they they were related to them. um, And then talks about the classification of the high or men of the west, which were Numenorians and middle peoples, the men of the twilight, such as the Rohirrim. And then he goes on to talk about the decline of Gondor. Yet now if the Rohirrim are grown in some ways more like to us, enhanced in arts and gentleness, we too have become more like them and scarce claim any longer the title high. For we are become middlemen of the twilight, but with memory of other things. Okay, well, Faramir, what do you mean by that? In what ways has Gondor declined to become like Rohan? Well, here we go. For as the Rohirrim do, we now love war and valor as things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only the crafts of weapons and slaying, we esteem a warrior, nonetheless, above men of other crafts. Such as the need of our days. How has Gondor declined? How has it become like the Rohirrim? The elevation of being a warrior. The. Now, I just had the same problem in my other class the other day. I need a verb form for the noun hero heroicization like we, we have a verb for villainize but we don't have a comparable verb for to make a hero do we? I can't think of it yeah I mean there were some vague ones but there's no direct I don't, I don't. well see but that's got some connotation anyway glorification, glorification will work glorification will work <laughs> You said what? Hero- 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 uh, heroification. That also works. Glorification is fairly close. It's not quite the same precise thing. Um, but uh, the heroification and also the glorification of warriors and of feats of arms. This is, he says, this is characteristic of the, of the, of the culture of the Rohira and increasingly of Gondor as time goes on. Um, now, this is the outlook that Eowyn is imprisoned in. This is where she comes from. Where is value? What do you need to be in order to be considered great and worthy and noble? A warrior. A warrior. And this is why she. You know, Gandalf talks about this too when he's explaining to Eowyn what's wrong with Eowyn and why she's so depressed. You had the opportunity to be a warrior. Amir, she didn't. This is the part of the speech which in the film is very creepily given to Wormtongue, but Gandalf actually says it in the Houses of Healing in the books. Um, One of those moments, there were several moments like that when watching the films for the first time when you know the book really well that were really weird. Uh, But anyway... um, And definitely an experience not reproducible if you saw the films before you read the books. It just won't strike you in the same way. Um, But anyway, so in part, her definition of honor is one of the things that leads to her despair. She had no option to achieve honor and glory in any other way. She was being excluded from being a warrior and therefore excluded from honor and glory. What did she have left? Nothing. This is a very crude version of her (coughs) thought process. Right now, Aowen has an interesting exchange with the, uh, the the chief of the houses of healing. Where is this? We're on uh, nine forty three. No, no, we're not. We're not yet there. Nine thirty six. Sorry. Even 937 is actually what I mean. Uh, 937. He's talking to the warden. And the warden is deprecating the warrior culture. He says how strange it seems to him that that, that the hands of, 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 of a warrior should also bring healing as Aragorn's has. It is not thus in Gondor now, though once it was so, if old tales be true. But for long years, we healers have only sought to patch the rents made by the men of swords. Though we should still have enough to do without them. The world is full enough of hurts and mischances without wars to multiply them. He thinks as a healer. And is, there's almost an implicit kind of competition between him. Like the, he has a different worldview from the warriors who are now, remember as Faramir said, increasingly exclusively warriors. There is not the kind of crossover. You know, he, the warden starts this remark by pointing out, hey, Aragorn appears to be some kind of real throwback to the days when people used to be able to be both. But now they're not. They're specialized, and the ones who specialize in being warriors are the ones who receive high honor. And the healer doesn't, doesn't think that way, doesn't go along with the warrior side. And even is implicitly critical, all those warriors going out there fighting wars and creating wounds and making things hard for the healers. Eowyn rather rebukes him. It needs but one foe to breed a war, not two, Master Warden, answered Eowyn, and those who have not swords can still die upon them. Would you have the folk of Gondor gather you herbs only when the Dark Lord gathers armies? You can't just be one-sided on the healing front. You, she's defending the warrior culture, right? Uh, Faramir, what would you say to that? He talks about that explicitly. Faramir says, for myself, this is again back in the Two Towers to Frodo, for myself, I would see the white tree and flower again in the courts of the king's and the silver crown return. He would see Minas Tirith turn back into Minas Honor, he says. War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. In other words, Eowyn's right. You can't just abandon being warriors when there is an enemy out there who is attacking you like this. War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all, but... Now here's where Eowyn would need to listen, because she does not add the but here. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor. And I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise." but I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his strength. That's the other side of the equation, which Faramir has, which Faramir holds to. He is a warrior and one of the great warriors, but he does not have that worldview which he attributes to the Rohirrim and which we see Eowyn articulate, where the warrior is loved for his strength and the sword for its sharpness and the arrow for its swiftness. Then we return, now page 643, to Eowyn's sort of pseudo-conversion moment. Faramir has just declared his love for her. What a smooth operator Faramir is in this scene. But now were you sorrowless, without fear or any lack? Were you the blissful queen of Gondor? Still I would love you, Eowyn. And if you're not thinking about Sir Lancelot, you should be. But, um, well, I mean... You've never read anything about Sir Launcelot. You can be forgiven uh, for not to do it, for not thinking this. But anyway, now note her response. I stand in Minas Anor, the Tower of the Sun, not Minas Tirith. Remember the name change. Okay, and behold, the shadow has departed. I shall, I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie with the great riders, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer and love all things that grow and are not barren. No longer do I desire to be a queen. I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. What is happening here, it is not in the terms in which Tolkien frames this, it has nothing to do. They never even talk about doing what a woman should do or a woman's place. Eowyn brings that up to to Aragorn, right? Right? All your words are but as to say, I am a woman and my place is in the house. She turns it that way when she's arguing with Aragorn. But here in her discussion with Faramir, that is never an issue. And we've seen it wasn't for him, right? Tall men and fair women, valiant, both alike. He puts them in the same category. And here, it's not about, I am now going to become feminine. I guess it's not for her. It is, I am moving from... I am going to embrace the, the, the point of view which Faramir describes as high instead of middle. To go beyond being a warrior. I am going to change my definition of honor and glory to one which is like, though she's never heard it articulated, though he hasn't ever delivered it to her, to Faramir's perspective. Where you'll remember he responds to Frodo's, his perception of Frodo's virtue when he discovers that Frodo is carrying the ring and abstaining from it and says, you are, he says, you are incredibly virtuous. If everyone in your land is as virtuous as you, then in that land, gardeners must be be greatly honored. That's sort of the sign of how you could know that people are that virtuous. have that kind of virtue. This is Faramir's conception of it. So what's he going to do? What does he say to her? If she will, then let us cross the river and in happier days, let us dwell in fair Ithilien and there make a garden. All things will grow with joy there if the white lady comes. This is the final settling into not a feminine sphere. If so, then Faramir is becoming as feminine as she Right? But rather into this actual image of virtue and peace from which Gondor has been declining and to which the Rohirrim have never, as a culture, fully ascended. The embracing of growth and healing as the highest glory and honor instead of slaying and being a warrior. You see? Marta, you've been very patient. Oh, um, well, I was just thinking of another kind of point you can make against the whole she's becoming feminine argument is that is not the only person to be making this choice. What do you think all those men who are fighting in the army are going to do after this? They're going to go back and go back to their farms and their, their homes and build and the land with their work. And that's what you do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's It's what she's moving on to is a higher calling and a higher destiny. And she begins to perceive that in the end. Um, remember her first reaction? Her first reaction upon finding that the war was over was like, I guess I have to go be a mercenary somewhere now. <laughs> remember when she said that? Like, if there's still, you know, an empty horse I can ride. and Because if honor and glory, if, I mean, if, 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 if what is good, you know, if, 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 if being a warrior is all that there is, I guess I have to, you know, do something. Um, but yeah, I'm going to just leave that behind. Yeah, Derek? Also, I was thinking of, kind of like what you were saying earlier, uh, Faramir is a lot more feminine than Eoweth, in my opinion. Like, he has nightmares, you know. He... <laughs> well, he has prophetic nightmares or like reverse prophetic nightmares. Like, he he has, Faramir has two dreams that we know of. Uh, right, one was the the calling dream right the seek for the blade that was broken in Imladris it dwells dream that came to him lots of times in Boromir once and the other is his as a sort of like reverse prophetic dream um, his dream about the fall of Numenor it's a wonderful comment It reminds me of Numenor I often dream of it I mean just, just for somebody to say it reminds me of Numenor uh, it's pretty remarkable uh, One little, uh, okay, I was going to give this tidbit incautiously, but I won't. I will give it cautiously. Um, Biographical tidbit. Tolkien himself had a recurring nightmare of like a, a, a huge wave sweeping over the land. Now, you see how it's tempting to take that fact and say, oh, that makes everything make so much... But sp- it doesn't, actually, do anything to make anything make any sense. Um, I, it's just cool. Yeah, and, but it's so tempting to be like, oh, so farmier here. Mmm. <laughs> like, what? I mean, what conclusion are we, do we draw from that? It's just like... It's, uh, to me, it's the biggest problem with, with like, trying to apply his biography too much. It's just, it gives you the sense... Of understanding things, even when it actually hasn't increased your understanding in any significant way. I mean, it certainly helps to sort of explain, perhaps in some sense, why the downfall of Numenor, which is such a pivotal moment in the history of Middle Earth, is shown in that way. But of course, that derives at least as much from the myths of Atlantis as it derives from his own personal nightmare history. Right, his own <laughs> personal dream history. Yeah. Farmer uh, also has a dream about Boromir's book. So which may or may not be, yeah. Um, he's not. Yeah, he, he 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 seems to leave that kind of open. Um, he, he has a vision of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, which is why he's uh, he 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 has a vision. Um, yeah. Okay, that was fun. But now we have fifteen minutes to cover everything else. Ready? <laughs> Just a couple tidbits. Aragorn is king. Um, Note the emphasis, and I'm going to cover Aragorn's kingship in three seconds. Okay, not three, 30. Aragorn's kingship, that moment, the moment of the downfall of Sauron, we're now in the beginning of the fourth age. Um, And the beginning of the fourth age is the beginning of the dominion of men. The age of men has come. The age of the firstborn has passed. This is a major transition moment. This is the time, even more than the end of the first age, even more than the end of the second age, this is a real turning point in history. Uh, in global history, this is you know, arguably more important than either of those other two very climactic points. Okay, so um, where now the firstborn will decrease and the secondborn will increase. Aragorn's role as king, his his whole kingship is one of the things that's emphasized about it. Is sort of his role in that transition. Remember, his he's not comfortable with his rule, he still finds, like, the whole being crowned king of Gondor, finally, the the whole return of the king thing, still pretty anticlimactic until what point? He still thinks it's all pretty shaky until the sign is given. When he finds the tree with Gandalf. Yeah, when he finds the tree. That's the moment where he's now confident um, that, that everything is working out, that everything is right. The tree... What's the tree? Descended from... Yeah, it's a seedling from the dead tree, which was a seedling from Nimwath of Numenor that, you know, remember Isildur brought it over, which is a f- seedling from the one in Eressëa, which is a seedling from the one in Tyrion, which is a seedling from Telperion, the silver tree in Valinor. What a family tree there. Exactly. But... I actually do think that had to be said. But anyhow, the point is, the tree, of course, links Aragorn and his rule to the past, to the deep, deep, deep past, and to the West. But of course, his reign is also the beginning of the future age that has come. And Aragorn is this sort of transitional figure. He is going to guide the coming of the new age, but he is also going, as Gandalf says, to keep alive the memory of things that have been. That is his job, to be this kind of link or tie between the past and the future, and connected with memory in that way. I'm going to uh, jump ahead, if I don't, we won't get there, to the scouring of the shire, Okay, I'll talk about the other stuff too. They say goodbye to lots of people. Goodbye, 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 <laughs> goodbye. This is one thing again that I li- I mean, I, I always and always will defend the end of the film, *The Return of the King*. The thing that annoys everybody about it, about all of the like continual sequential endings. That's exactly how the books end. I mean, how many times? Like, and now it's say goodbye. And now it's say goodbye again. And now it's say goodbye again. That's exactly how it happens. And that's like. The third or fourth to the last chapter, I mean, it's still not even, like, in the final pages. It's, uh, I mean, we're saying things like, uh, my heart forebodes that we shall never all be gathered here in one place ever again. And this happens, like, 50 pages, 100 pages before the end of the book. I mean, it's, it's, it keeps, you know, we're going to keep saying goodbye and saying goodbye and saying goodbye. Um, one of the effects of that kind of rhythm um, you know, sort of the revisiting things and saying goodbye. The feast in Meduseld, and the saying goodbye to Treebeard, and the return to Lorien, or and the saying goodbye to Golladriel, the return to Rivendell, um, the return to Brie and all the way back. Uh, the kind of you know waving at you know in the direction of Tom Bombadil as as, as Gandalf rides off. Um, we revisit and say goodbye to all these things, and it's interesting how these large. Grand and epic places have become familiar, even comfortable. I mean, you think like, ah, Orthanc. good to see Orthanc again, right? I mean, how strange that would have seemed uh, compared to the first time they went to Orthanc. And uh, um, it helps to emphasize how large the hobbits have grown. Remember that, you know, they are in a little land and the great world around them, um, as was emphasized in the beginning. And we see the whole place has become comfortable. Ah, feast at Metiseld, how lovely, right? And then when they get home, they're great. The problem they have in Brie, everyone's staring at them and pointing when they come in and they're thinking like, no, it's okay. No, it's it's just us, we're back. Gosh, everyone seems so surprised to see us and then they realize we look funny. Actually, it's just we're wearing armor and carrying swords and um, we look like characters out of fairy tales to these people which, of course, they don't really emphasize the conclusion um, we've become characters in fairy tales at this point, right? But they have. They've become big. As Gandalf explains to them, you've been trained for this. Go settle things in the Shire. And that's what happens. Now, the scouring of the Shire, the conditions in the Shire when they return... Um, One way to kind of sum it up, one way thing that I would emphasize is Frodo's statement when they return to Bag End and he says, this is Mordor, right? This is what Mordor looks like when it comes home, right? Um, This is what he referred to back in the foreword as applicability at work. Okay, so in the real world, um, evil is not going to look like Mordor. Exactly. Um, it's not going to, there's not going to be like a big tower. There's not going to be the blasted wasteland on which no living thing will ever grow again. It's not going to look like that. What's it going to look like? It's going to look like the Shire when they come home. We have Lotho, Lotho Sackville Baggins, the chief who has set himself up as chief. Um, where did he start to go bad, Lotho? they hear about this from Farmer Cotton? Farmer Cotton's is a fascinating thing at this point. We're now going to come back and touch on things which we sort of started talking about weeks and weeks ago, and I said, we'll get to this eventually, when we we're talking about hobbits and hobbit culture. Um, Farmer Cotton says... It turned out he already did own a site more than was good for him. Like there is a maximum amount of land you can own that is good for you. Any more than that quantity of, of land ownership is likely to be destructive, which it is, turns out. Uh, one problem with Lotho was his acquisitiveness. Seemed he wants to own everything himself, says Farmer Cotton. Like that itself is counterintuitive to Hobbit culture. Why would you want to own everything? In our culture, this doesn't seem to need any explanation. I think Tolkien would call that a bad sign. (laughs) This is one of the things that Tolkien had objected to about modern society. Um, We can also see in the scouring of the Shire some of what he was arguing you know, about industrialization back in some of the early essays that we read. We can begin to see how, Tolkien would argue, that industrialization inevitably leads to bomb factories, that you can't have industrialization without bombs. Look what happens in the Shire. The desire to become wealthy, to own everything that you can and increase your wealth, is a corrupt desire. Because it's a desire for dominion over others. He was perfectly, he, Lotho, was perfectly content. He already inherited a whole bunch of land from his dad. He was as comfortable as anyone would need to be. All of his needs were met. But this was not enough for Lotho. He wanted more. Which, which is dominion. It's a kind of corruption. And industrialization. He wanted to grind more and faster, make better mills. It's only natural that Saruman ends up here, of course. This is his kind of corruption. It's like his own corruption, in fact. Saruman, remember Gandalf calls himself Saruman as he should have been. Saruman should have been a steward. Instead, he wanted to be master. And to increase the power and significance of the role ascribed to him. Sound like anybody else we read about? You know, like in the Ina Wendale? Um. But notice, it's not just like Lotho is a freak. I mean... He kind of was, but it's not, he's not unique. Remember, again, Farmer Cotton says that even in the Shire, there are those who like minding other folks' business and talking Bic. What happens to the Shire happens, they, they emphasize, the, the, Farmer Cotton emphasizes, for two reasons, both because most of the hobbits don't resist because they're too complacent, in fact, we can see in the Shire what happens, what Eowyn was talking about. It only takes one enemy to make a war, and people who don't have swords can still die on them. If you don't have any kind of... If, 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 if Rohan is embracing the glory of the warrior, the Shire is the complete opposite, which is a great thing most of the time, but not an entirely good thing. And when the warriors, who are now warriors, return who are now big, Merry and Pippin literally, all four of them figuratively, uh, then they set things to right. right, and pretty easily. One battle and we're done. They defeat the, the big men in Hobbiton very simply. Seems almost too easy, doesn't it? Says Farmer Cotton. So that's one reason, their complacency. But the other reason is their complicity. He wouldn't find out nothing if some of you weren't sneaks, says Hob Hayward to the other sheriffs. Now, in Saruman's end, we can see the ultimate end of such thinking. In Saruman, we see a kind of a literalization of that which is only figuratively represented in the destruction of Ungoliant, who at last, in her final famine, ate up herself. Right? Saruman does a similar thing. In the end, we see sort of the pettiness, the shriveled outlook of Saruman. I mean, just sort of look at some of his last speeches there, like on 961. All my hopes are ruined, but I would not share yours if you have any. Go, I did not spend long study on these matters for naught. You have doomed yourselves and you know it. And it will afford me some comfort as I wander to think that you pulled down your own house when you destroyed mine. And now what ship will bear you back across so wide a sea? He mocked. It will be a gray ship and full of ghosts. It will afford me some comfort as I wander to think that you pulled down your house when you destroyed mine. That's what he takes pleasure in. That's what he takes comfort in. And he shows the same perspective in the Shire, in his conversation with Frodo. It would have been a sharper lesson if only you had given me a little more time and more men. Still, I have already done much that you will find it hard to mend or undo in your lives. And it will be pleasant to think of that and set it against my injuries. He's... This is not just wicked... It's obviously pitiful, pitiable, and tiny. And Frodo's response is first to resist the impulse to follow along and take pleasure in his downfall and to take revenge and instead to show mercy and pity, which Saruman hates. Saruman's end, his throat is cut and we see his spirit emerging uh, and appealing to the West. And the West answers. What happens? You're calm? It's like a cold wind that comes. Yeah, a cold wind blows from the West and brushes him away. He appeals to the West, can I come back? No, you cannot come back. Uh, And I love the line, the description of his corpse, that years of death, it shrivels right away, and years of death were revealed in it. Saruman has been dead for years. His body was still walking around, he was still doing stuff, but the choices he made have led to a death, which he has already suffered. And this is just finalizing it. Okay, I will let you go. Uh, for the first half of class next time, we will do just a couple more odds and ends, uh, followed by a look at the very end of the book, and hopefully if we get a chance, a little bit of discussion of the story of Aragorn and Arwen uh, in the appendix, and then we have to do evaluations. So, uh, and that is the end. I will see you on Wednesday. Alright, the next class will be the very last of the semester, and I'll try to wrap things up as best I can. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.